So I'm just reading your notes, Steve. It says here you've been playing lots of golf. Lots of golf, finally. Four rounds in 48 hours, in fact. Right. Well, I've, and I've, I've come up with a new system for you. All right, which reveal I've, all. Well, there's been a lot. Of, there's a lot of debate, isn't there, at the moment about the world golf ranking? Not sure. I like where this is going. Well, I think you. I think you need your own system. It's called the ESYR. Can you can you guess what that stands for? It's too early in the morning, Tom, to try and work out acronyms. The uh, the egg the egg sandwich Yorkshire ranking, <laughs> which which happily happily spells easier. So your golf's got. Your golf's got a lot easier since the stealth two, hasn't it? Yeah, well, yes, yes. Um, I'm I'm going to claim victory here as well because I've sort of dug my heels in when it comes to the fitting, and it, and I think I am going to be going to the belfry now for a full-on right. tailor-made fitting. But more importantly, did you win any egg sandwiches in all this golf? The, there were no egg sandwiches up for grabs. Mm. However, non, I, non-qualifiers. I, I I did I did score a solid. 34 and 35 points on each of the tracks that I played. Jesus. It's winter golf for you though, isn't it? So where was this at? Uh, so I was at North Berwick last Friday. Um, obviously just fantasy golf course that, isn't it? Uh, and then I went to Royal Burgess. Um, uh, the, of course, the, you've been to Scotland, haven't you? I forgot yeah. about this. The oldest golf society in the world. Uh, very mm-hmm. central Edinburgh course, really nice spin around there. And then I dashed back across the um, ring road to Kilspindy. What a golf course. What a golf course Kilspindy is. Loads of really cool infinity greens hitting into flags in the sky. And then we finished off the very pleasurable early spring sunny day round at Long Nidri. Right. Have you been to North Park before? Yeah. Yeah. I've played it before, yeah. And you don't you haven't been to Killsbindy before, had you? No, first time. It's um uh you'd I'd love to be a member there. How many points did you get there? I think I think I got thirty five there. Five and a half thousand yards. No, we we played it off yeah, we played it off white. So we played it the furthest we could. It's proper proper links turf, plenty of birdies, right by the sea. It's awesome, isn't it? It was in unbelievable condition, like really yeah. unbelievable condition. I don't think I'd, I'd be surprised if I played better greens this year. Um, they yeah. were phenomenal when you consider it. It was just the first, second of April. So you've been on a golf trip. I mean, that is like, that's punchy, isn't it? Golf trip in early April, late March. Fair play to you. Yeah, well, you've got to do this um, because it's just too expensive, as we've talked about before, to now go in yeah. peak season. So we there's a me and a mate that I went to school with, so he's obviously like my oldest friend. Yeah. Um, and we have a trip. We organise this trip at the same time every year, try and get the shoulder season prices with a you know with a sort of champagne golf course. Yeah. Um, there's definitely a pod in this. We should definitely do a sort of an anatomy of a golf trip. Uh, podcast how to build your perfect golf trip uh, so you're saying number one book it in the shoulder season there's definitely something about going on a golf trip just as the clocks have gone back isn't there but i think that is yeah. a good shout i fear your golf trips would be a bit extreme though because don't you like play 36 holders a day for about 10 days aren't you just don't yeah. you just come back like a wreck we haven't done that for a while but yeah we had we dan and i did get in the habit of um We've done a couple of sort of eight days where we played 36 holes every day for eight days. They do become a bit 
uh, attritional, shall we say. I mean, my back, my back was killing after 36 holes on the Saturday. I didn't know I was going to get up on Sunday to do it again. Yeah. I'm still suffering now. Yeah. I play golf as well. So I saw... I've got a quiz question for you, actually. So I played I played golf at Sam Moore on uh, Sunday morning at 7.30am uh, with Jack Backhouse, who's our, one of our equipment editors. Uh, he's a member at Sam Moore, and he books the first time every Sunday morning and they are quite militant about it. You have to tee off at exactly 7.30 or the greenkeepers don't like it because they're still doing their things. Um, <clears throat> weirdly, he then has to book the time for the next Sunday whilst you play him because the tee sheet goes live at 8 o'clock. So he sets himself an alarm which goes off on about the fourth tee so he can book his time for the following week. Anyway, we played in a two-ball uh, match play. I think he shot four or five under. He absolutely hammered me. I shot level par or thereabouts, and he beat me four and three. How many minutes do you think it took us to get round? How long do you think it took us? Three ball. Two first, ball. Two ball. A two oh, ball. Two ball. First it's, tea time. His dad walked round with us and hit a few putts, but other than that, it was a two ball. Uh, it's quite compact, isn't it, Sammo? Although there's a bit yeah. of hills in places. I'm going to say 220. 220? Yeah, you can be, you can be fast. You ruined that. It took us two hours, 36 minutes. You're speaking to someone, Tom, who's played quite a lot of two-ball golf first thing in the morning. I know my times. Yeah. It was brilliant anyway. And some more, I don't know if you've been there lately, but it's the way they present it is absolutely amazing. They've like cut all the grass through under all the trees. So it's like, I don't know, it's sort of presented properly. Never, You're never ever looking for a golf ball. Um, you've always got a chance of a recovery shot. It's it's mint, and it's got. I think it's got some of the best par threes in the country. It's like they've um, read Mackenzie's thirteen principles from Mackenzie course, isn't it? It is a bit like that. Yeah, it's a bit like that. Um, so it's the Masters, isn't it? It's happening. Yes. Um, as this goes live, we'll we'll be into the second round, won't we? So I've written in my notes that um, that we need to be a bit careful with this kind of thing. But so we're recording on Masters Wednesday. We're going to publish this on Masters Friday. But the bulk of the listens are going to be sort of after the event, probably or during the event, aren't they? Um, so people will be already uh, enjoying a pimento sandwich shall we say um i'm i don't know why but i'm really excited this year like i've been in the loft and i've found my uh i found my merch i found my 2018 hat i found a t-shirt that doesn't really fit me anymore uh yes yeah, so i've got proper master's fever and that's the theme of the podcast isn't it so we've got a guest today we've got sam evans who is the greenkeeper at north hans hello sam hiya uh and we're we're going to have a chat with Sam about um, something we, we think is a bit of a golfer's affliction, and that's Augusta syndrome. Um, it's a funny thing. Have you have you looked for definition of Augusta syndrome or not? Have I looked for it? Firstly, I'm yeah. gonna firstly I'm gonna chastise you for not giving Sam his proper title because he's course manager at North Hants and he's a master greenkeeper, no less, Tom. Well, we're gonna get we're gonna get to bios in a minute. So we're gonna. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna we're going to talk about 
answer to anything. We're going to talk about um, Augusta syndrome. So for those people who have not heard this phrase before, um, there's a there's a definition at the top of Google, which is, I think is pretty nice. Um, it's describing the affliction whereby golf consumers de demand the perfect golfing conditions that they see on TV. Um, and I think this, I mean, this is an old expression, isn't it? But I think it's as true today as it was the first time I heard it, in that we will all sit there this weekend, watch a sort of pristine uh, golf course, um, host some of the world's best players. We'll turn up to play in our midweek medal next week, and it won't be quite the same. Uh, and we won't be backwards and coming forwards with our views on that and bemoaning the fact that our, our course is not presented in quite the same perfect condition. So Sam's the expert on this. Um, Sam is um, the golf course manager at North Hants. Uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself, Sam, how you've come to get into this prestigious job? What's led uh, you to yeah. this point? Yeah, no problem. Firstly, thank you for inviting me on to the podcast. Thanks for coming. Sorry again, I was late. No, you're fine. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's quite nice from a sort of golf course point of point of view to, to, to discuss the Augusta syndrome because it is a real thing. Um, little background about myself. Uh, so I'm currently golf course manager at North Hants. Uh, been here just coming up to three years now. Uh, we're a Heathland golf course originally designed by James Braid. Uh, prior to that, I was at a, I was course manager at a place in near Twickenham called Fullwell Golf Club. I was there for about four years. Parkland, uh, built on London clay, so you can imagine. Uh, drainage uh, issues there potentially uh, and then before that I my, where I cut my teeth I was head greenkeeper at a place called Oakland Park Golf Club uh, in Beaconsfield or just outside Beaconsfield so uh, prior to that deputy there and assistant greenkeeper at a place called Haythrop Park in Oxfordshire which is where I'm originally from a little place called Chipping Norton. Okay. And you've got all sorts of qualifications so, so you've, got a, you've got an MA for Myersco in sustainable golf course management is that something you've done whilst working or is that kind of part of your education no that was something that was uh, distance learning work-based um so uh, yeah i've done quite a lot uh, i think when i was when i was a lot younger i i fell into the industry uh, i was i had a little gardening business with my father then i went to university and did sports management uh, just because I, I enjoyed my time when i worked at a leisure center when i was about 16 17. Uh, and then when i um finished university or actually no my third year of university I was looking for some part-time work and Haythrop Park in Oxfordshire were looking for part-time greenkeepers so I went along realized I loved it um, and then thought I want to be I want to be at the top of the, my game in this industry and I sort of worked from there from being a what 19 20 20 21 year old uh, looking at what qualifications there are so I originally did my level three in sports but sports turf uh, management then I moved on to do my level four sports turf management. These are all work based, so these are all uh, while, while I've got a full time job as well. Um, and then because I had my BA honours in sports management, I was able to jump straight into the master's degree um, of sustainable golf course management. So I did that through Myersco, and I completed that about twelve months ago now. So I think uh, it's yeah, I pride myself on on my qualifications, and I think it's the way the industry's gone. We need to have back in. Uh, with what we're saying to members and how to how to manage a golf course, really. Yeah, it's uh, our business is partnered with Bigger, and it, there's certainly been a professionalisation, hasn't there, of of, of greenkeeping um, over the last few years. I think it's it's something that people are taking a lot more seriously. Um, every time you read a survey about what golf course members value, the number one thing they say is quality of greens. Um, so I think it's right that um, 
agronomy and, and greenkeeping's been uh, perhaps a, given a slightly higher profile than it has had previously. Um, you come highly recommended, by the way. Um, I was, I'm, 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 I'm pretty friendly with Sam Cooper, I'm sure you know, do you? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I was chatting. I was chatting to him, chatting to him about doing this podcast, and he does a podcast with James Bledge at um, Hoylake. Um, and James suggested a few people. You were you were one of them, and then Steve said, "Well, I'm going to go and speak to Bigger about who they'd recommend," and they also recommended you. So it was like all 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 roads led to you, regardless of where we where we went. Um, so it's it's great that you've come on. Um, I guess the obvious place to start is: have, have you ever been to Augusta? No, never, never. I was fortunate enough to work TPC Sawgrass in 2017. Yeah, I saw that, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's, that's as close as I, I've been, but no, never been to Augusta. I'd love to one day, but never been. We're about to hear a humble brag from you, Tom, aren't we, about your trip to Augusta? That's what <laughs> yeah, this so, has all been leading to. So, so what we're saying is that I'm the only person on this call who's been to Augusta. That's what we're saying, isn't it? <laughs> I, I, I went in, in 2013, which was the Adam Scott year, uh, when Tiger hit the flag on the um, on the 15th and got his penalty, if you remember that. Um, and it is quite a cool experience. But we won't, let's not dwell on that. Um, tell us a bit about North Hans. Yeah, like I said, Heathland Golf Course. Uh, I've been here three years. Um, we've got some big plans on the horizon, irrigation bunkers and potential for some tea works. We've just had a course redesigned from Tom McKenzie, from McKenzie and Ebert, uh, to, to develop the golf course uh, for where golf's at now. I think we've got a lot of bunkers that are no longer drivable or oh, sorry they're, they're too easy to to drive into so everyone's driving over them so i think it's important that we stay current with the golf technology and the and the golfer ability as well um so yeah we're currently i think we're number 81 in the top 100 of england uh, and this year is the first year we've got open qualifying back they haven't had it the club haven't had it for about 20 years and uh, the rna are coming here for open qualifier in june for the next five years so that's a nice little accolade to have and it's 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 where Justin Rose grew up, isn't it? Yes, so Justin Rose, yeah, he's an honorary member here. Uh, and yeah, he's, uh, um, I think he's one of his uh, entourage is still a mem- uh, member here. And one of his best friends is the pro here. So there's quite the link with Justin Rose. Uh, I'm not quite sure when yeah. he uh, moved on membership-wise. Um, but yeah, I know he was a junior here. And he's got a great relationship with the club. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he's also my top tip for the Masters this week, which this will either age very well or very badly, won't it? But uh, I've had a bet on Justin Rose this week. I think he's very overpriced given his um, recent form and record around there. Um, so I guess just if we're trying to get stuck into what Augusta Syndrome is and start by what what do you, when you're watching the Masters on TV, have you kind of got your head in the hands thinking, oh God, this is going to cause me a problem next week. Like what, what, what things are you looking at when you're watching golf at Augusta that you, you think, oh, I just can't possibly achieve that at my course? Uh, I think, yeah, all of these uh, top-end golf courses, uh, such as Augusta, when you see them on TV, don't get me wrong, as a turf nerd, I enjoy uh, watching the golf for probably different reasons than you guys enjoy watching the golf. Um, yeah. it's got something special about it and and you know i've been in this industry now what 15 years and it's always been you know every april like you say your head's in your hands thinking oh no i'm gonna have an email uh, full of complaints on, on monday about <laughs> why, why our greens aren't looking like augustus um the big thing i think from from my side is all about education for for members i think you know uh, augusta versus where i am fleet uh, in the south of england is two completely different climates 
lots of different re restrictions, different budgets, different staff levels. There's so many uh, variables that come into it, um, which all can be explained and all can be uh, justified. Um, but you're you're not comparing eggs for eggs. Um, and I, I think we're as a country, we're even guilty of that uh, in more of a localized area as well, uh, with regards to courses that are that are around you. Um, people don't understand the resources that one course might have versus uh, what another course might have, whether that's staff levels, whether that's investment, budgets, all of that type of thing. Uh, it's important to remember that every club is different. There's, I mean, from, from my point of view, I guess, as a golfer watching it, there, there are certain things about watching the, the golf at the Masters where you kind of think, like even simple things like white holes, um, so the, the paint inside the holes, like just on TV, is so sort of um, redolent, isn't it? And it, it, it is just it makes the golf course look some, something otherworldly. The whiteness of the sand in the bunkers, um, the blue water, which every year people are sort of asking questions about whether they dye the water or not. So a lot, a lot of this stuff, I guess, is resource, isn't it? Because you, you see the pictures of um, five or six mowers going down the fairway, sort of. Um, in formation and this kind of level of resource is just not available to um most clubs i suppose uh no you're right there and i think it's all about prioritizing investment and your budgets um so uh with with whole whitening for example like you mentioned uh, we do that here for board competitions just so that it adds a little bit of extra um uh, extra for that competition but we don't do it on a daily basis uh, and also one thing with that is if let's say you have a board competition on the saturday and you don't change holes again until maybe the Tuesday, the holes look awful on the Sunday and Monday because it's just uh, day, old, day old white. Whereas obviously somewhere like Augusta, they'll probably have a one designated member of staff or one team just in charge of holes. So they'll be able to go and, and sort the hole out the day after or, or freshen it up or even change it. Um, so I think, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of things we can do um, that are simple wins. Uh, so for me, an example of looking at Augusta, the camera might zoom in on a sprinkle head, for example, it might, leave, it might be perfectly edged. There's nothing stopping us from doing that, I think. And I think in our, in our industry, we can do a lot of those jobs as we're doing other jobs. So you may be able to cut greens and trim the sprinkler heads rather than make it two separate jobs. But there's a number of things you, with places like Augusta that just aren't possible without investment and without the, the resource. Yeah, the the sand is a thing. So I, I play at um, I play at a, a Mackenzie. I play at Old Woodley in Leeds, and we're obviously a sort of classic Heathland. Um, and the the colour of the sand in the bunkers, I was is a sort of a topic of de debate all the time. Like, do we go for sand sand or do we go for white sand? Is white sand more expensive? Is it harder to maintain? Like, is there a reason we don't have white sand bunkers? Uh, it all depends on a number of things. Um, if there's any liner, for example, um, if if there's no liner, then you'll get contamination with soil particles or you know worm cast. They love coming up through bunkers, uh, and that will just contaminate that sand. So it may. It, let's say you got some white sand in, it may stay white for a week, but then mm. we may get heavy downpour, uh, and loads of worm cast come to the surface, bringing claggy soil up, and then all of a sudden it's contaminated. So I think liner is is an important thing, but. You mentioned their price. Um, aggregate price in the last, what, three years has gone through the roof. Um, for We're looking at um, China clay sand um, for, for our bunkers going forward, which is like a grey uh, sort of mottle effect. Um, I don't know if you may have seen that one, but I think last price I had for that was around £50 a tonne plus VAT. Uh, and if mm. not, it may, it may even be a little bit more now. So 
if you're if you imagine on the average bunker you might put three ton in that's 150 pound per bunker uh, just on sand which like i say after a week if you haven't got the right liner may be contaminated and and uh, may not play as well yeah that sounds like a lot of money <laughs> 150 150 pounds times however many bunkers there are that's a lot of money isn't it yeah um and then the the water the people always talk about the water being dyed and i think this there was a there's a bit of a trend wasn't there in this country in the 90s to build sort of usga specification golf courses that were all kind of fortress greens and big ponds um they don't look quite as good do they under gray skies and um with, with the, the the water's gone sort of murky brown do you think do you think they dye the water they must dye the water so you it's can proper... you can dye your water and at golf courses that i've been at in the past i have done uh, and you can buy have you yeah they're so they're cool they're actually for a purpose they're, they're to reduce the algae that builds up on the right. water and you can get black dye or blue dye and you you just literally throw these dissolvable bags in uh, you work out how many you need versus the volume of water. But the purpose for them that I've used them for, and I believe they're sold in the UK, is to prevent algae buildup. Uh, but in turn, they do make the water uh, look a little bit nicer when the sun's shining on it. So I'm, I wouldn't like to say, but I'm pretty sure that they will be dying the water uh, at Augusta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't quite, don't quite as on that. Um, no. uh, I think the other thing, the other thing I would say about, I mean. I don't know if I mentioned it, but I have been. The, having, have, the other thing I would say about having been is that the it's not it's not just the playing areas that are pristine. It's everywhere you walk, um, as in all through the trees, all the footpaths, that even where the fans are. Like they, see, I don't know how they sort of make it quite so durable because obviously it gets big footfall during the week. But the presentation of the sort of runoff areas and places that you would accept to sort of slightly scruffier on almost any other golf course because of the um, because of the footfall because they're high traffic areas. They're all just pristine. So yeah. I don't know whether they've got some kind of synthetic stuff in some of that in some of those non-playing area grasses to make them sort of harder wearing. Is that is that a thing that you can do? Um, I don't know if it's reached the golf world yet. And to be honest with you, I probably don't yeah. think there's any synthetic out there. Uh, obviously, in maybe the the uh, football world, rugby world, tennis world, there is the sort of hybrid pitches that you can get now. Um, but I think going forward, there may be some work going into golf tees going forward just to, to prevent any wear during the winter. But the, the, somewhere like uh, Augusta, for it to be pristine everywhere, it'll be down to a number of reasons, but the fact that they'll be able to treat all of the areas like playing surfaces. And what, what I mean by that is at your average golf club, uh, coming out of winter, you may have a walk-off, walk-on area which stays bare for a few months. You may overseed it once and hope for the best, but it might not have any irrigation. And next winter, it'll be the same track again. Whereas if uh, the money's there, the resource that is there and the time is there, you could treat that surface like a playing surface. So therefore, it may have irrigation to it. It may be on a fertilizer program. It may be overseeded with high wear grasses. It may be overseeded with lots of different varieties of grass seeds. So I think if if you can treat something like a playing surface, uh, it will stand up to traffic a lot more and it will look a lot nicer as well. And somewhere like Augusta, oh, yeah. I, think, I think I've seen the, the pictures of, of a bunker being worked on at Augusta where I think there was 22 men working, or 22 staff working on one bunker. Uh, and if you think for a full rate here, I'll probably send two guys out for a full rate to, to rate 76. <laughs> so obviously the, the, the difference is, is um, not really comparable. 
Yeah, that's. I mean, the other thing I guess that's not really comparable. We've all we all see the pictures of Augusta through the winter, um, and it it when you get to this week in April, it feels like it's almost in its own sort of biosphere, right? And it's in like a centre park's dome because it's like weather doesn't affect it. And we all, in the week of the event, we see the massive downpours and the greens will be flooded and they suck the stuff out with their sub air systems. But I think if you go back a stage, like they are trying to get the thing ready for this week, aren't they? And they obviously dig up poles and um, scarify greens or whatever else. So it is perfect for this week. And th these, again, you can't just close a golf course in this country over winter to get it ready for the first week of April in, in that way, can you? But no, I think you're, you're you're trying to prepare a golf course for year-round golf. Yeah, yeah, and, and let's be honest, the UK is popular for golf all year round. Obviously, yeah. I, I don't know the timings, but I know Augusta does shut for a long period of time during the winter. And going back to your point earlier regarding bunkers and how the sand looks, I know that they pull all the sand out of the bunkers for their winter as well. So they've got a team that literally just remove all the sand from the bunkers and then pop the sand back in um, uh, prior to the season again. So it's obviously fresh sandal i should imagine it'll be new stuff but again i'm speculating there um so so yeah it's, it's yeah it's different world at times different world yeah i mean we don't want to we don't want to uh we don't want to kill the magic too much do we but no, i think there is there's, there's some there is, there is some really good stuff in there i think in terms of how it's like basically getting dressed up for a night out isn't it like you want to look good for a black tie do and the fact that you were sat on your couch and your pants an hour before is kind of a bit by the by really um yeah. i think there is some stuff in, in, in there about um, what goes on at your golf course or a golf course in this country in the run-up to this week. Um, so what can you talk to a bit about the challenges of getting a golf course ready for the kind of start of the competition season in April? Like, what has this winter been like? Have we seen, has it been cold? Has it been wet? What have the growth rates been like? What, how's this year for you and, and how does it compare to previous years? Um, so one thing I will say is rainfall is, is becoming a, a bigger issue uh, in recent years than it has done over the last sort of 10 years. And what I mean by that is not necessarily volumes. I think if we just look at this winter gone by, I think November, January and March had extremely high levels of rainfall. But the difference between maybe this winter and maybe, I don't know, 2007, let's say, is how the rain comes. And what seems to be happening is large amounts of rain is falling in a real short period of time. So rather than having maybe drizzle all day, which might give you, I don't know, 10 mil of rain, we're getting 10 mil of rain falling within an hour. And what that means is drainage systems, infiltration rates, and the playability of a golf course can be massively affected for that period of time straight after the deluge. And if I'm honest, I'm not sure a lot of the older drainage systems can cope with uh, heavy downpours, whereas it can cope with slow and steady. So I think rain rain is a, a real interesting one to look at and the way that it's falling. Uh, but obviously we've got to still deal with that, um, but it does have a knock-on effect to, to what we then do during the winter. Uh, I'm sure every golf club in the country have, has a winter programme and a winter plan of all the different things that they want to get done over winter, whether that's tree work, path works, bunk works, whatever, whatever it may be. Um, but sometimes when we're doing these works, we need tractors, trailers, um, lots of buggies and, and we almost have to stop what we're doing because of what conditions uh, are, are presenting. Um, snow in particular as well. Snow is obviously when we get a light covering of snow that will stop things as well. So our winter programme is constantly being pushed back and back and back with a lot of these, these different climate uh, variables. 
then what that means is, so for us here at North Hants, we aim for April the 1st. April the 1st is our start of competi competitions. Uh, we've just had the Hampshire Rose on the 2nd, and then we've got the Hampshire Hog uh, on the 16th uh, of April as well. Uh, for, yeah. us, for us, starts at the start of April. Uh, so obviously they're two really big amateur events, uh, country, countrywide events. Um, now what happens because of, like I said, conditions get thrown at us, I'm not quite where I want to be with my winter programme by the time I want to be ready for the season. And because we have a number of competitions early, which I'm sure a lot of golf, cl golf clubs do as well, our playing surface renovations or maintenance, so you're tying in, you're sanding, scarifying, we do that at the end of February. Now, obviously, growth in February is pretty poor, and we're then working around frost to try and get our maintenance practices done. Now, don't get me wrong, doing it in February or doing it in March or April, it's still good to do it. Uh, but obviously, we're not just fighting resources, labour, timings, we're fighting the climate as well. And it just adds another, another variable at that point um, to, 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 to make sure that everything's good to go for April 1st. So obviously, Sam, you've gone through your renovations um, for the winter. We'd often see courses also having a similar maintenance week or similar maintenance um, late into the summer, into August and September. Could you just explain to us why you need to do that um, as well as in the early season and you know, whether perhaps we should be thinking about when we hold our competition seasons, whether we should have them starting later and finishing later? Yeah, okay, so um, I like to run three heavy maintenance weeks throughout the, the year. Uh, we do one end of February, uh, we do one first week in August, and we do one about the third week in October. And the reason we do these is aeration and um, top dressing. Now, we continue to do little bits of aeration and little bits of scarification and little bits of top dressing throughout the season, but we try and do it in a way that uh, you guys, the golfers, don't realise that we've even been there. Um, now. One of the reasons for sanding, for example, is firmness. The firmness of the playing surfaces and it obviously helps with the drainage as well. But the main factor for our aeration and maintenance practices is organic matter level uh, management. Now, organic matter levels are in the top two and a half centimetres of, of the soil and it's all where the, the majority of the upper roots are. And any dead mass, any dead material from the leaf goes in there as well. Now. The management of that is so important. Um, to have zero organic matter levels, you're going to have really poor greens. And in the same regard, to have 20% organic matter in the top uh, two and a half centimetres is going to give you poor greens. So it's a, it's a, case, it's a case of managing uh, on that continuum where you are. Uh, there's, there is, people do discuss an optimum uh, level of organic matter of between maybe three to 6% in the top two and a half centimetres. Uh, but obviously that isn't an ideal world and that's what you're striving towards. Um, as an example, I've got some greens here at North Hans that are up around 10% in the top two and a half centimetres. Now that doesn't mean we can't get them to perform the way we want them to, but it just means we need to manage those going forward. And uh, during these maintenance weeks, we need to make sure that we're doing the right things to attack the right areas in that soil profile. Um, but with competitions, sorry, go on. Yeah, I, I was just going to talk about competitions, obviously, leading on from what you're saying. I mean, um, our first competition, we, we were supposed to have a trophy event at York on Saturday and the conditions just meant that we couldn't have it um, because our um, our trophy competitions essentially have to be, I think, in the old terms, qualifiers. And there was expected to be, I think in the end, there were three temporary greens. Um, our first medal this weekend is, is, is this weekend, sorry, Saturday. 
what's that going to be April eighth or something like that? And um, you know, it's I've been playing a course that's five thousand seven hundred yards all winter, and I'm suddenly going to be going to six thousand four hundred yards, and I can tell you it's going to be a bit of a shock um, to the system, particularly as we we protect our course at York, and we've been playing off mats all winter long un- until last week. So I've got my bit, I've got this bee in my bonnet that. Um, that the competition season in the United Kingdom just starts too early and that really now, especially with the with the kind of wet winters that we're having, that April the 1st or April the 8th or whatever it is when clubs start, it's just too early. Um, and that perhaps, given that we seem to get more and more sort of late summers, good Octobers into early Novembers, perhaps we should start our comp- competition season in May and maybe finish it sort of mid-November if that was possible I'm sure as people are listening to this there are loads of people furiously <laughs> typing into their keyboards but um, I- I'm prepared to take the flack here Sam <laughs> for saying that competitions should start in May but do you think there's some sense to that argument I mean is it really really so is it taking all of your challenge and all of your capabilities to try and get us playing serious club golf at the start of April uh, I mean, yeah, there's there's obviously a lot of um, stresses, should we say, around that time, whether that's on, on the, the, the department or getting the course ready, or even from an agronomy point of view, there's a lot of stresses to get everything ready for April. And if I just look at this week alone, um, there's, there's, what, 3rd and 4th of April, we're having quite heavy frosts in the morning, which mean we can't really get out onto the course and do do too much or do as we as we wish. I think it's a. I think it's a massive thing. Is that is this later season? I mean, like, it's all of these things are anecdotal, isn't it? And it's sort of terrible to form your opinions on your own experiences. But I've been going on a golf trip in late September, and it's just blessed with good weather. Um, the, the golf course we play at is sort of pretty high up, um, so we we struggle early season. I don't really think the golf course gets going until late June, in all truth. Um, but it's a fantastic autumn golf course, um, and I I feel like that. The, the season is getting later and later. That I would I would agree with Steve on that. In that, it feels to me that golf golf is happening later in the year, or the best golf is happening later in the year more now than it ever has done. Um, what are you are you you, you mentioned earlier about um the way that the, the weather or the the way rains has changed? I think we seem to be getting deluges of rains rather than sort of a constant drizzle. Are you seeing anything else in terms of extreme weather conditions? Um. I wouldn't necessarily say extreme, um, but April is, you know, we're just discussing there about having the competitions in April and whether this is too early, but the the month of April seems to have changed drastically, like I say, just since I've been a greenkeeper. Um, The thing of April showers seems to be no more, and April almost seems to be a bit of a nothing month these days. And what I mean by that is there's very little growth. Uh, In recent years, there's been very little rain. Uh, there's been very little um, climate for recovery. And if anything, there may have been a little bit of humidity knocking around that encourages disease at that time of year. So April has really turned into what used to be maybe a good germination month, uh, a good sort of prep month, has turned into a very, uh, I don't know what the word to use is, just a very dull month for golf course management. Yeah, I think and we've had a lot of cold Easters as well, haven't you? I think yeah, yeah it, it, it that is how it feels. I, I, I'm, I'm glad you've sort of supported a hunch with some with some facts. Um, if we sort of to get get back slightly in the direction of Augusta again, um, there's been a lot of talk recently about ball rollbacks and are we all hitting the ball too far and are the RNA doing the right thing by potentially limiting 
golf ball at elite level and this sort of concept of what sounds like a tournament ball. And when we've discussed it on this podcast before, we sort of described it almost as an as an Augusta National ball where they need a ball that week that is going to protect that particular golf course or certainly similarly prestigious golf balls. Is there anything you can see in terms of how Augusta's presented where they are kind of adding length or, or toughening up the challenge to try and limit the effects of distance hitting or anything that you think that could be done from a sort of agronomy or a course presentation point of view which could perhaps achieve some the same things without going down the route of bifurcation? Yeah, okay. I mean, the, the first thing that comes to mind is standing on a tee and making golfers think about what they're going to do. Uh, how many golf courses have we played where we get on the hole and we grab the driver because we think this is what I've always used, this is what the hole is made for. I think standing on that tee, uh, and for me personally, from working with Tom McKenzie closely uh, in recent years, being able to stand on that tee and think, what what club am I going to use here? I think that's something that really should be considered in golf course design, and maybe that obviously comes with bunker management, bunker locations, and even fairway uh, lines and fairway edges as well, because obviously a lot of clubs like to have wide fairways. Um, some clubs like to have narrow landing zones, large landing zones, but all these different things that may just be seen as cutting lines to us as screen keepers, as agronomy guys, to golfers, it can change so much and put so much thought into that tee shot. Uh, but not only that, I think when we were at the green end of the golf course, how we uh, shape the greens and the green surrounds as well, I think is really important. Having having shortcut areas that sort of run down at the side of the green, little uh, grassy knolls, grassy swales, I think can really add, uh, <coughs> add, add difficulty to the holes as well for you guys. Uh, one thing that I like to do personally is have large approaches. I think having, you know, where I am now, we cut our approaches quite tight. And what that means for for the golfer of all abilities, it gives you lots of lots of opportunity. Um, you know, I've seen I've seen some of our older golfers putt thirty yards uh, because they can, but then I've seen some of the better golfers take a flop shot with a sixty degree to get the same outcome. So I think on a lot of golf holes, a lot of golf opportunities, I think the important thing for us and also maybe for the the future of making sure everything stays current is making golfers think: what club am I going to use? God, that's an insightful point. I, like the the um, the the indis- the whole thing is about trying to make it easier for the the weaker player and harder for the better player, right? That's that and that that to me was like quite a sensible part of this bifurcation thing. Is that that's exactly what it's doing? It's not making it any harder for the club golfer. It's but it is um, dialing things back a bit for the elite golfer. And you're absolutely right. I think you can do some of the same things in terms of presentation. The example I always think of is that I I, I went to Pioneers one year and they've got these like upturned saucer greens and it's all mown tight as you like for 20 or 30 yards around the sides of the green. So if you're a a mid-handicap golfer with one shot, you're just going to put it, right? And you've got no choice but to put it because that's the only shot you've got. So it's not really making it any harder for you, arguably it's making it easier. But if you're the if you're a better golfer who's got a bump and run and they've got a flop shot, you've got a, a checky chip or whatever else, it's it's making you have doubt about what the right shot is. And that is what makes the game difficult, isn't it? When you when you're uncertain about what you're doing. Um yeah. so I think that is that is that is a really a really good point. Where do you stand on um tees that point in the wrong directions? <laughs> um, I like to try and get all tees pointing in the right directions. I think sometimes uh, tee markers and the shapes of tee markers can really 
overemphasize um, when it goes slightly wrong. So what I mean by that is some team markers are long rectangles that, that sit on the floor. If a greenkeeper maybe gets one of them slightly wrong, it really does over-exaggerate uh, the fault. But T-shapes in general, the actual playing surface, the actual turf surface, I like to have the edges pointing down the hole. Um, and I think that's, that's important for golfers as well um, because how many times do we go on the range and we'll line up with the mat we stood on or we line up with some, some of the sticks we put on the ground or even a club. So therefore, when you're stood on a tee, that cutting line that's on your right and your left, for me, if, if you follow that line, you should be where, there or thereabouts where you need to be. It's, uh, it's, it, it's amazing how much difference it makes. Um, I was at the range with my eight-year-old on Saturday yeah. uh, and trying to get him to hit to a flag that was at an angle to the mat. He just couldn't do it, so we, and then we had to shuffle the mat round because it, it was just lining up with the mat. And we all do it; it's not it's not um, um, as peculiar to him. But they, I used to hate it. Like if you went to a golf course and the greenkeeper got the tee box in the wrong way around, you'd be like, "Well, why why are they pointing me over here when the hole's over here?" And then I read Mackenzie says it's a legit like architectural trick to have tee boxes that point at angles to the hole. It's, I mean, it is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because it's again, it's something where you've got to kind of double check yourself. Um, but you're, I mean, you're no, erring no on the side of uh, being kind. Yeah, I'm no architect, but I think if you know, if you if you picture the hole where you've got maybe five tees all in a line down the hole, you want them all pointing to the landing zone. I think that's. But like I say, I'm no architect. I guess that's why they get paid to do what they need to do. Yeah, yeah. And what's um. What about the, the, the direction the, the fairway grass is cut in? So I think kind of famously Augusta started mowing the um, fairways in the direction of the tee to try and lengthen the golf course out. Do you think that has a big impact? I think for the grass, depending on the grass species, I think um, it's all about grass nap. And you mentioned it earlier about maybe seeing a fairway with a fleet of eight to ten mowers all mowing in the same direction. And I know they discussed it in commentary last year uh, for the Masters, the fact that they all cut back towards the tee, I think it's on the Saturday, to, to, to try and make the course play longer. Now, to the everyday average golfer, do I think it makes too much of a difference? Probably not. Um, but to the elite player who can put spin on what seems to be every club they play, I do think it may, maybe does make a little bit of a difference. Um, but yeah. it all depends on grass species, because you can get some real coarse grasses that are going to uh, hold the ball up a lot more uh, than some of the finer grasses are. Yeah. And we've also seen there is the other sort of trend, I guess, which is a crossover between architecture and 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 and, and greenkeeping. Is is this? We've seen a reduction in rough, haven't we? And we've seen a reduction in number of trees. Um, so, what, where's what's your position on that? Are you saying that less rough and fewer trees is making the game easier, or are you thinking it's creating more options, or we're losing control of the golf ball more? Like, what what do you think the right answer is there? Uh, I think it's all about management of the specific site. Um, so I'm a Heathland golf course, and I think looking back at my the history here, I think in 1933 there was only 12 trees with inside the boundary, whereas now yeah. there's a lot more than 12 trees. Um, and obviously trees and heather, for me, don't work that well together unless they're managed separately. Um, so I think that's something to really consider. But one thing I hope that we're doing as an industry, especially in the UK, is we're managing roughs. And so what I mean by that, is rather than let the rough grow up to thick, juicy stuff that you're going to lose your ball in, we are flailing these uh, every autumn. We're scarifying them. We're, we're actually treating them in a way that is going to encourage the finer grasses to come through and it's going to eradicate a lot of the coarse grasses. So therefore, what that will then give you is if you do have long rough, say, down either side of a hole, 
it'll give you the character, it'll give you the shape, it'll give you the aesthetics. But then when your ball goes in there, you still have the ability to find your ball and play a decent recovery shot out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it is a, a, such a minefield of a thing, I think, that we speak to so many golfers who are crossed that the rough's been um, mown or the trees have been taken out and people saying the game's getting easier. It's just not reflected in scores. Um, it feel, and I, I think that if you look at Augusta, they, they have done quite a bit of that, haven't they, in, in recent years to try and toughen the golf course up. They've grown the rough. It's got more rough, I think, than it ever has before. Um, and they planted trees. Like I remember famously when Tiger won in 97 or whatever it was for the first time, they, they physically planted fully grown trees on the side of 15 to try and, to try and toughen it up. Um, so I don't know whether there's... I don't know whether... Augusta's sort of quite true to its original principles in that sense, and maybe, yeah, maybe the rest of us are, um, are kind of a bit more anti-rough than 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 they are. What well, I guess um, with Augusta as well, just on that note with trees. Um, I, 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 I don't quote me on this one, but I'm pretty sure the majority of the trees there are pines or cedars or some yeah, sort of everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So therefore, you know, you compare that to your average parkland over in the UK. And poor green staff over here between November and January are just blowing, picking up leaves, blowing, picking up yeah. leaves. So I think that's another thing that comes into our jurisdiction for tree management is you have to think about if they're going to drop their leaves and how we're going to clear those up. And especially, I mentioned earlier about being a heathland, any heathland golf courses that do have trees, if you don't get rid of the leaves out of the heather, the leaves rot down into nitrogen, heather doesn't like nitrogen, and it will be detrimental to the header so there's so, there's a lot of things agronomy uh, agronomic wise to consider when it comes to trees as well but i fully appreciate the the playability point of view and maybe you know what you've just said there about augusta they're just trying to evolve and adapt to modern uh, modern golfing mo modern golfing yeah adventure. can i step in there tom because I, I also wanted to ask you uh, some about disease um which is obviously something that uh, you're particularly restricted with in terms of um, how you can deal with uh, thing. I, I know it's not called fusarium anymore, but it's 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 what I know it as, and and those kind of like um, fungal diseases on greens that you get in in the UK because of the sort of weird climactic conditions that we have. I, I'm not sure um, Augusta National probably has a worm in sight on their golf course or leather jackets or Schaefer grubs, which is obviously something that that. Is, is common on UK go golf courses and you've had all sorts of chemical restrictions put in place, haven't you, over the last sort of three or four years, which has negated your ability to deal with them. So, I mean, how much of a challenge is it now dealing with disease, dealing with these kind of insects and pests, I suppose, if, if, if that's the right word to use? I mean, how, how, how big a challenge is that for you? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's huge. Uh, integrated pest management for us is, is really difficult now. Uh, and linking it with our conversation regarding Augusta, one thing to bear in mind is the restrictions and the authorities between the UK and America are completely different. So a lot of the products that have been banned in the UK over the last 20 years are still being able to be used in the States. So whether that's fungicide for disease or whether that's um, worm treatments or whatever it may be, there's a lot that's still available in the US versus over here there's not. Um, just in, like I say, the, the period of 15 years that I've been greenkeeping, there's been so many products that have been removed. Um, you've mentioned a few there uh, regarding leather jackets and worms. Uh, we, had, we had products that we could just go and spray wall to wall across the site that were relatively cheap. Um, carbendazine, which was for worms, 
and um, Chlorpyrifos, which was for leather jackets. And if you've got the timings right, Schaefer grubs as well. And you could literally pick a rainy day and spray your site wall to wall and that would tick a big box. Now, both of these products got banned, I'm pretty sure, uh, around seven, eight years ago, potentially. Um, yeah. And they, they're gone. Now, don't get me wrong. Technology is looking at different ways we can treat these now. Uh, so for me, I, I've looked into nematodes. Um, the, the, there's companies out there that are developing nematodes to eat or, or uh, kill the leather jackets that are in the soil. But there's so many variables with that, and it's pretty costly in comparison to what, uh, what was being done. Now, just take that one subject of leather jackets as an example. What that means then is pecking damage to uh, golf course surfaces, which is probably the biggest thing that we're struggling with. Now, don't get me wrong. Leather jackets will eat the roots of a, grant, of, of a grass plant, but nine times out of ten, we, we're able to keep the grass plant healthy enough for those eating the roots not to affect or be detrimental to the playing surface. However, the pecking is what we're, we're struggling with. The crows come along, they can, they can smell the carbon dioxide that is released by the leather jacket, and they find an area of turf, and they peck, 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 and peck. And it just produces, uh, yeah, it's, it's not great. And the other, the other big thing uh, for leather jackets is badges. Now, touch wood, I don't struggle with badges here, but I know there will be golf courses that do struggle with badges. And they, again, can sniff out the leather jackets. And areas that I've seen in the past that have been attacked by badges, it looks like you've just gone with a turf cutter and flipped it over. It's it's soul destroying, to be quite honest. Wow. And they're just leather jackets and the shaver grubs. Um, so, it's that that one subject alone is is quite a, quite a big one. Uh, and like I say, there is technology being trying to develop to to reduce leather jackets. There's a lot of uh, different theories regarding spraying garlic as well that to reduce them as well. But there's nothing that is as good as the old technology. Uh, and you mentioned as well disease. Um, you know, you, you mentioned fusarium, obviously Mycodocium navale. Um, the applications to treat that disease are a lot less and the volumes, I think it's important to mention the volumes as well. Uh, if you think 15 years ago, you might get a product that you might spray at 20 litres per hectare. So if you imagine a big 20 litre drum, we're now working with products that you're spraying maybe 1.5 litres a hectare. So the volumes of these active ingredients are vastly produced um, and the availability of them is, is, is getting fewer and fewer. Uh, and not only that, with our conditions, I know we mentioned earlier about climates and, and how everything's changing. Um, we, we're normally uh, susceptible to fusarium in the winter humid months uh, where it's wet and warm. And then we normally look at anthracnose as a, as a disease in the summer, which is when the grass plant is under high temperature stress and high playability stress. And that brings in anthracnose in the summer months. What also we're noticing now as an industry is dollar spot is coming in. Now, dollar spot used to be just something that the states had. It was a disease that the states had. And effectively, it's lots of little 50p pieces that die on your green, effectively. And it's called dollar spot. They normally go uh, a white color. And because of the way our climate's changing, um, we're now uh, experiencing a lot of that. But like I say, we're not getting the fungicides or the, the, the treatments uh, there to be able to use to treat it. So, so, <laughs> so you've got a golf course that's allowed to close for six months over winter to prepare itself for one week in April. You've got unlimited resource. You've got some different legislation around the use of pesticides. Um, you've got what is definitely a better climate for um, golf courses uh, in Georgia. Um, all of these things are in favour of Augusta, yet we still expect our golf course to be perfect at the start of April. 
So what what are what are golf the level of understanding of these of these differences? Do you think are people getting more understanding? Are they getting less understanding? Uh, in my experience, I think they're getting more understanding. I'm, I'm quite fortunate. You're too nice. You're too nice. Uh, no, because if we if we roll back if we roll back five or six years, there'd be uproar around Augusta time and the Augusta syndrome. But in recent years, one thing I've found, and whether that's just the the, the golf clubs I'm at, or or whether that's people paying an active interest, I do think people are starting to get it, starting to understand. And and one thing that I do here is I do weekly videos that I send out to the members internally, so it's not on social media. And I, you know, the last one I just did uh, was 15 minutes long. Now, if they want, if they want to listen to it, they can. But, but it's all about things that they're going to ask me questions on. So, on a course walk, I'll stop, and if I see a bit of disease scarring, I'll take a take a video of me there and explain what the disease scarring is, why it's there, why it's only on that green, maybe not on others, and what I'm going to be doing about it and what it means for them. And then I'll carry on walking around. Then there might be some stumps where we've done some tree works, and I'll talk about that. So not only is it is it from a playability point of view, but I do bore them, if you like, and I do talk about the restrictions we have, and I discuss the whole leather jacket thing, like I just discussed with you, the disease uh, treatments as well. So I, I massively think it's about education, and I think a lot of people in our industry use social media really well for that. Uh, there's a lot of videos that go out explaining what's going on, uh, but obviously it is down to the golfer. If the golfer's not interested, they just want to pay their money and turn up on a Saturday and play and then complain about it, I guess that's their prerogative. But if as an industry we can keep, and obviously doing things like this as well, uh, we guys like you, if we can keep putting it out there of, actually it's not as it's not as easy as you may think. And even before I came into this industry, what did I think it was? I thought we cut grass for a living. Um, but it's, and, and maybe do maybe people do think that still, but it's quite, it's not quite as, uh, as clear cut or as easy as that. That is a phenomenally good point about like the point you said made about the course walk, like just showing that you've noticed something, getting ahead of stuff like that is that is really important, isn't it? And um, that you care as much as anybody else, or more than anybody else. I think that's massively valid. I think we get um, we get maybe a bit of a bad name for golf courses, uh, whether that's from a sustainability point of view, biodiversity point of view, or whether that's just from a course presentation point of view. The amount of comments that course managers or greenkeepers must must get about, oh, why did you put that pin middle right on seven? Um, and I always think some people think that we try to trip people up. But going on your point there, actually, the, the golf course is our biggest love. You know, yeah, I'm yeah. very fortunate. I'm very fortunate. I don't work for a living. I've got a hobby. My job is my hobby. I love what I do. Mm. And North Hans Golf Club, I want, I want the golf course to be presented in the best way it can. And I hope that's the same for all of my staff. And I think it's important that, like we say, we nip things in the bud and see it like a member. We see the golf course through the members' eyes, if I've paid a joining fee, as if I've paid a membership, I want to know what's going on. So that's why I try and I try and nip it all in the bud. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. That's brilliant. So come on then. The final question is who if people are listening to this on Sunday evening, who are they watching pulling on this green jacket? Uh, I'd I'd love to say Justin Rose. I'd love to say similar to you, I've I've backed Justin Rose. Um I'd love to say it. I think he's in great form. Um, and obviously he's just coming off the back of a recent win as well. Uh, and yeah, the romantic story says says Justin Rose for me. He's also under the radar though, isn't he? He's not Liv. He's not had anything to say about Liv particularly. Yeah, He's got an amazing Masters record. He's 66 to 1. I talk myself into this kind of thing every year. <laughs> it's worth the tenor. <laughs> Steve, what you got? What you got for us? Uh, I would... Uh... 
I would love to see Rory do it. I'm a romantic. I would just love to see Rory win it. Um, I hope it's... I've had this thing over the last few years, Tom, where I've basically watched Rory mess up the first round and I've backed him top 10, top 5 finish. <laughs> I've, made, I've, I've made some sums um, yeah. over the last few years. I just hope we don't do that again. I think, you know, given... Um, his place in the game, it would be a great shame if Rory didn't manage the Grand Slam. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think if uh, Justin Rose wins, there'll be a lot of happy North Ants members. But I think if Rory wins, there'll be a lot of happy people. Full stop. Won't they? That would be. That's what we all all want to see. Um, brilliant. Well, enjoy watching it. Hope next week's not too painful for you, Sam. And uh, thanks sure again, very much for coming on.